And what I thought I would do is just start with Barry's question, and then we'll move from there to covering as many of the unanswered previous questions that I can cover tonight. All right. Um, I thought his question was very interesting. Uh, why don't you turn to a passage while I read the question? Turn to Second Corinthians chapter 12. Barry asked, what is or where is the specific location of the third heaven and the throne of God? Where is the specific location? I'm assuming he's looking for GPS coordinates so that he can identify them for a future visit. Of course, I'm joking a little bit here. But let's read um, from 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I'll read the first five verses so that we can be on the same page in terms of the terminology that he used in his question. The, the key term being third heaven. So, and we've addressed this before. I've, I've kind of just briefly touched on it, but um, I'll take a few minutes to uh, hopefully explain this in more clear terms. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 1. Paul writes, I must go on boasting. Just a, a brief contextual explanation here. You know, the Bible teaches us it's never a good thing to boast, right? Are we all, we all understand that? It's never a good thing to boast. And yet Paul here is compelled to boast, and he's boasting, in, spiritually speaking, with what we would call tongue-in-cheek boasting. He's not really boasting, but he's been put on the spot. And the spot he's been put on is this. The, the background of this section of the book of 2 Corinthians is that Paul, who is a true apostle of God, I mean, he wrote, by the grace of God, God's special assignment in his life, 60% of the New Testament. I'd say that qualifies as a true apostle of God. And he planted, established the church in Corinth. And then he leaves, as his assignment required him to do, because he had other cities to visit to proclaim the gospel and other churches to plant in other cities. After he leaves, the believers that, in a sense, in a natural, physical sense, owed their spiritual lives to Paul's ministry, began to question his assignment, his position, and his calling. Now, they didn't just out of the blue start to question it. What happened was there was a group of leaders within the church that rose up that, that earlier in this book, Paul was forced to identify as false apostles, men who claimed to be apostles of God who were not actually apostles of God. And as false apostles tend to do, they targeted the true apostle and they claimed that they were apostles and he wasn't when the truth of the matter was he was an apostle and they weren't. And so now Paul is forced by the circumstance to publicly defend himself in this letter. Why does he defend himself? Because what he says will determine who the, the innocent believers in Corinth will follow. Are they going to follow the false apostles or are they going to continue to follow the true apostle and those that are, of course, in agreement and co-workers along with him? And so this section is part of Paul's personal 
self-defense, his defense of his own calling, his own ministry as an apostle of God. And this is one of the things he's going to use as a defense, which is a special experience that he's had in the Lord. Experience is not always a valid defense of who you are in Christ in terms of saying, well, I experienced this and you haven't. But in this case, it's a valid thing to mention because of the unique nature of the experience. He says, I must go on boasting, though there is nothing to be gained by it. I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who, 14 years ago, was caught up to the third heaven. There's our key phrase, caught up to the third heaven. Let's go ahead and read and then I'll come back to that phrase. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. Whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise. So we have here a parallel use of terms. Third heaven is the equivalent of paradise. And whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. Verse 4, And he heard things that cannot be told, which men or which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast except of my weaknesses. Now, anyone want to help us out here? Who's this man that Paul's talking about? He's talking about himself. Why would he go, go about this convoluted, convoluted way of describing this experience from 14 years ago? It's because for him to say, I had this experience, would be essentially boasting in an unhealthy, proud, and arrogant way. And so he uses a literary device in which he steps apart from himself and he says, look, I don't want to boast about myself, but I will boast about a man that had an experience. This man went to the third heaven. He was caught up to the third heaven to paradise. While he was there, he heard things that is not even permitted for human beings to utter. And he had this experience. I'm not even sure whether he was physically there or only spiritually there. I don't know. Only God knows. But I will boast about him. But I won't boast about myself because when I'm talking about myself, I can only talk about my own weaknesses, not calling the undue kind of attention to myself. But we can be clear that Paul is speaking about himself. Why can we know that for sure? Because again, this is part of a larger section in which Paul is defending his own ministry. And what, what good would it be to mention someone else's experience to defend his ministry? It would be like me saying, well, I'm a true pastor because David had an experience 14 years ago. That wouldn't make any sense, and it wouldn't be a valid defense. But if I was speaking of myself, then it would. And so in this case, we know that it is Paul speaking. So Paul had a special 
spiritual experience. He was caught up to the third heaven. It's this key term that was used in this specific question, and I'll read the question to you again. Where is the specific location of the third heaven and the throne of God? The third heaven, of course, is identified with what we call, when we refer to God and his dwelling place in the throne, what we call heaven. Our Father who is in heaven, hallowed be your name. That heaven where the Father is, where the throne of God is, equals the third heaven that Paul refers to here. And it also equals paradise. Okay, Same terminology, just different terms to describe the same place. And again, I, although you understand this, I'm, I'm sure you believe this, this is a real place, not an imaginary place, not just a symbolic place with no actual reality or substance to it, substance to it but it is a real place. But it is a, a different kind of place than all of the places that we are currently familiar with in our present life experiences. And there is a reason why Paul uses this unique term, this special term, to describe heaven, paradise, and the term is, of course, third heaven, which implies what? Without stating it directly, it implies what? There's a first heaven and a second heaven. And so the Bible does teach what we could call, this isn't a Bible term, it's just a Bible concept, we could call a three-layered heaven except it's heavens, plural. Three layers of heavens in existence. Now, one common theme among all three places, and I'll describe which one is which, even though I think you're probably already familiar with this, but one common theme is all three heavens, heaven number one, heaven number two, and heaven number three, All three are real places. All three are created places. Meaning, all three have a specific beginning point. There was a moment in which heaven number one didn't exist. And then it did. There was a specific moment in which heaven number two didn't exist, and then it did. There was a specific moment in regards to heaven number three that didn't exist, and then it did. But they came into existence or were created in order, and they were created in reverse order. Reverse is only, all I mean by that is simply that typically when we would think of heaven number one, number two, number three, we might think of heaven number one being created first, heaven number three being created last, but it's in reverse of that. So that the third heaven was created first, the second heaven was created second, and the first heaven was created last. What are the three heavens? Number one. Number two, number three. 
Number three, we've already identified with paradise. The location of God's throne. It's also identified, and there's different terms to describe this, but it's also identified as God's dwelling place. It's the location of other things besides just the throne of God. It's the current location of what is identified in Scripture as the new Jerusalem, the city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem, various, various things like that. Okay? So this is what we think of when we think of the place where God's throne is localized, where we direct our prayers when we pray to Him. Okay? The second heavens, we're going in reverse order now, and, by, and so in, in terms of the creation order, the first heaven, I mean the third heaven was created first. So the first heaven existed before the other heavens existed. Why? Because God established his throne there, and from there the, the remaining things were, were brought about. The second heaven is what we would call the physical universe. This is the universe of stars and galaxies which are just large conglomeration of stars. Solar systems, smaller conglomeration of stars, planets, moons, asteroids, meteorites, meteors I guess and other things that we see in the physical heavens, including large gaseous masses and things of that nature. The physical universe in its full extent is what we refer to as the second heavens. Now this isn't part of the question that was asked, but um, is the second heaven, I'm just, this is a a little biblical pop quiz here, and this isn't specifically mentioned anywhere in the Bible, but this is a conclusion that you should be able to easily draw based upon your understanding of other biblical principles. Is the physical universe unlimited in size, meaning infinite in its dimensions? In other words, if you get in a rocket ship and you could fly fast enough like Star Trek or Star Wars, you know, and just keep going, would you be able to keep going forever? It cannot be infinite. So the second heavens is finite in dimensions. Why? Because only God is infinite. If any physical thing even something as nebulous as space and stars is infinite, then the creation itself takes on a key attribute of deity. And that, of course, is part of many false religious concepts throughout world history. But it is not true. The physical universe has physical dimensions to it, and there are boundaries around it. Now, how big are the boundaries? Bigger than we might imagine. 
would boggle our minds if we could really encompass just how big the boundaries are. But there are boundaries. And the fact that scientists believe that the present universe continues to, what? Expand implies even within that proper scientific understanding that if something's expanding, then there's a boundary to it. Correct? Like a balloon expands, but it can only expand because it doesn't already fill all space that's available to fill. So, this is true with the physical universe as well. Now, what scientists haven't adequately explained is what's on the other side of the boundary where space is continuing to expand. Now, the first heaven is what we would call the sky or the atmosphere directly surrounding our planet Earth. All right. So that that's the biblical picture of existence as God has created it and ordered it. The first heaven we encounter is the, the sky, the physical atmosphere directly surrounding our planet. That's, of course, very limited. Um, the physical universe beyond is the transition into the second heavens. And then the third heavens is paradise, God's throne, God's dwelling place, And what can we say in terms of number one and number two, heavens number one and number two, in terms of the kind of question that was asked, where's the specific location of heaven number one? This wasn't asked, but I'm going to apply this question to all three. What's the specific location of heaven number one? Well, it's specifically located directly surrounding our planet. That's easy to identify, easy to recognize. What's the physical location of heavens number two, the physical universe, everywhere outside of our atmosphere that we can physically see with our eyes or any mechanical devices we invent to expand our vision, such as the great telescopes like the Hubble telescope that is in orbit. So anything that can be seen through the eye, the natural physical eye with any Additional means added to that ability is the physical universe, and that can be located. So that leaves us with the actual question that was asked, what's the location of paradise? God's throne, God's dwelling place, the third heaven. Let's uh, turn to Hebrews chapter 4. By the way, as far as we're concerned, we have access through our ingenuity, and of course that ingenuity is by the grace of God, but we have access by our ingenuity to all of heaven number one and a very small portion of heaven number two from here to the moon is how much we've we've explored so far. And if you were to plot out like on a graph how much of the physical universe has been explored from here to the moon compared to what is there to be explored, it would be like, I mean, I, I, 
it would be like the width of a hair compared to from here to New York City or less. It's just, it's the, the physical universe dimensions are so much more. But we do have access to it. Technically, theoretically, if we could build a spaceship like the ones that you saw see in Star Trek or Star Wars, we could explore even more of the physical universe. It's not walled off from us. The question is, do we have access to heaven number three? And the answer is no. In terms of our physical ability, our personal ingenuity, our our ability to go there. But there is one, and actually more than one, but he's the, of course, the leader in every sense of the word, who does have access to all three and full access to all three. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 says this, Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Which one? We don't know for sure because he doesn't say pass through heaven number one, pass through heaven number two, pass through heaven number three. But the implication is that in this particular journey that's being described, he passed through the heavens. Now, we know what, what journey is being described here. This is the journey in Hebrews 4.14 of what we call the ascension of Christ. This is the culminating event of the mission of Jesus on planet earth. He had died on the cross fulfilling the, the great mission of redemption. He rose from the dead and then 40 days later he ascended in the view of his closest disciples from the mountaintop and he lifted from planet earth and passed through from their perspective at least the first heaven and he was caught up into what into a cloud and then they lost sight of him the cloud is in heaven number one so they never saw him pass through heaven number two and whether he actually technically passed through the galaxies in order to get where he was going and where was he going if he left from planet earth and passed through heaven number one he was definitely going to heaven number three which is the the true and final culminating location of his mission as he arrived back you heard me read from revelation chapter five on sunday morning as part of our communion time That describes the arrival of the Son of God back to heaven, having fulfilled and accomplished his mission. And so we don't know, and I'm not going to make the case, that he definitely did pass through heaven number two, but it's entirely possible that he did. And we're not talking about passing through like even Star Trek passing through. In Star Trek, they go really, really fast. Okay? Uh, There's a, I don't know, did anybody see in the news this week... um, there's some, a group of scientists that believe they've discovered a subatomic particle called a neutrino that is actually, as far as they can tell, exceeded the speed of light. Has anybody heard about this? Speed of light is 186, 186,000 miles per second. Okay, That's the measurable speed of light. 
And they've always believed since that discovery, since I think it was mostly Einstein that figured this out, that um, no particle could ever, or no thing could ever exceed that speed. All right. Now these scientists have discovered, well, wait a second, these neutrinos seem to be traveling faster than that even, and that's boggling our minds. We can't handle this. And so they've put out a call to the scientific community in general to say, are we crazy or what? You know, can anyone confirm our research? Well, if they had watched Star Trek, (laughs) they would know. You know, warp speed is going faster than the speed of light. Or in Star Wars, it's uh, hyperdrive, I think it's called. Hyperspeed, yeah. So anyway, all these science fiction shows are dependent upon a, a, a spaceship being able to exceed the speed of light at some, at some um, multiplied speed of light in order to get effectively from one planet in our solar system to another planet in some other solar system. But even then, it takes a whole episode to get from one planet to another planet. That's a whole hour's time at least. And maybe days in the show. Okay? And I'm saying that if Jesus did pass through the physical universe, he wasn't just, you know, he wasn't just slogging along at warp five. If he passed through the physical universe, he passed through all of it in an, a moment's time. Because he's not limited by the, you know, the physical issues that we're limited by in our exploration of the physical universe. But we know for a fact that he did pass through heaven number one and he arrived in heaven number three. So getting back finally to Barry's question, when he arrived in heaven number three, where was it? Where is it located? Okay, I like that. I like that answer. The answer someone just called out is heaven number three is... The only way to properly describe this from a biblical perspective, it, it, it's above heaven number two, which heaven number two is itself above what? Heaven number one. Okay, above heaven number two. Now, here's the problem for our finite brains and the way we think about these things. Because we think in terms of spatial dimensions, we're oriented that way. We're, we're designed and, and created to think in those terms. But when you have a universe that is so gigantic and it is stretching in every direction, then what is above that? And what does that even mean for something to be above the physical universe as we know it? Well, now what we're dealing with is not so much physical dimensions, but we're, we're dealing with a special use of language using physical dimensions to describe something that can't adequately be described physically. So now we're talking about a spiritual dimension. A spiritual dimension. Now you understand what I mean by a dimension, right? Our, Our universe as it's as it's created and constructed scientists have identified there are basically three tangible dimensions to it right what are the three dimensions height width depth so there's there's dimension going this way there's dimension going this way 
there's dimension going this way. All right? We're in three directions. There's substance and identifiable locations within those three dimensions. But more creative scientists in recent years have, have postulated. It's, not, it's a theory. They don't know. No one can see this. No one can touch it. No one can taste it. No one can, can locate it on a GPS. But they postulate that there are other dimensions beyond the three that we can identify. And it's a big debate in the scientific community as to how many other dimensions there may be to existence beyond what can be physically discovered. Now, the Bible, I think, makes it much more simple and clear, which is, and it never uses this exact term, but there is a spiritual dimension that we could call the fourth dimension, meaning it's above and beyond the three that make up our physical world existence and universe as we know it. It is somewhere completely other than here. That's my answer to your question, Barry. It can't be identified using spatial terms. But that doesn't mean it doesn't have reality and there is no space there and no substance there. Because there is, as you read the description of the third heaven, there is real life activity going on there. There is a city there. There is a throne there. There is a throne room there. There are beings that populate that throne room. There are spatial interactions among them. There is sound. There is voice. There is music. There are many things that are similar to our present life experience. Yet, it's not natural. It's something greater than and other than what we presently know. It's in a higher dimension. That's the best way I can describe it. Yes, Tim? I would say this. It is physical, but it's not naturally physical. How's that? It's spiritually physical. Okay, like let me let me give a, an, an example that's more readily uh, graspable for all of us. Um, I've got a physical body that's familiar. You've got a physical body that's familiar. Now Jesus dies with a physical body that's familiar. Then three days later, he rises from the dead with a physical body, but it's completely unfamiliar and different and other than. It's unique. It's special. It's not of this realm. It is from the other realm, but in this realm for that period of time during the 40 days and 40 nights following his resurrection. And it's as physical as it needs to be, meaning he was able to be touched, he was able to eat food, he was able to interact in a normal physical way with his disciples. Yet, when the time came for him to move from location to location, he didn't open the door, walk out of the room, and leave. He just disappeared and then appeared elsewhere. But when he appeared, he was fully physical. So it is fully physical, I believe, the third heaven, but it's not naturally physical, which is limited to the natural limitations of our present physical experience. Uh, heaven, the third heaven? 
That's a good question. Here's a, here, that's, no, 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 we'll answer that right now. That's a great question. Here, and this is another biblical pop quiz for you guys. It's not mentioned anywhere in the Bible. But now we have to extrapolate based upon principles that we do understand. Is heaven, the third heaven, the greatest heaven, the highest heaven, is it finite or infinite? It has to be finite. It doesn't. The Bible says not even the highest heaven can contain the one who created it. But it has to be finite because God himself is the only being that can be properly identified as infinite. If any created thing becomes infinite, it becomes God. Does that make sense? We're talking about there are certain special attributes that the Bible reveals that only God possesses. One of those is the attribute of infinity. Any created thing that gains, if this was theoretically possible, any one of the unique deity attributes of God would instantly become God if it gained that attribute. So nothing in the physical universe ever has or ever can gain the attribute of infinity. Now, third heaven is a special question. That's why, you know, when Tim asked it, I'm saying that's an interesting question because we already understand by, by just inherent, you know, I, I'm, I've never been there, but I, I can sense what it must be like, especially from how the Bible describes it. But it was, remember, as identified, itself created. So if it were infinite in dimensions, it would also be infinite in terms of time. Not going forward, it will be infinite in terms of time going forward. It's eternal in that sense, unending. But it, going backwards in time, had a specific beginning point, a specific starting point. Because only God himself has no beginning and no end. Does that make sense? Okay. Next question. You said heaven was yes. So where was God before he was in himself. He was all there was. Nothing, nothing else existed except God before he began to create things. <laughs> Don't ask me to explain that because I've never experienced that. But that's what the Bible reveals to us about the nature, the unique nature of the uncreated one. Mm-hmm. We're talking God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. There was a moment before the first word and act of creation where Father, Son, and Spirit were all that existed and only existed. Okay. Well, there is there is no place because places were created. <laughs> yes, Francis. Yes. You're talking about the third heaven, right? Yes. It was. It is the same paradise and it's not the same paradise. 
have I, have I managed to confuse you yet? I'll try harder if I haven't. All right, here, here's the deal. It, okay, can I, does anyone, anyone here, note-wise, can I, can I create some space for myself here? Okay. I have explained this before, but it, don't beat yourself up if you don't remember this, because this is somewhat complex, and it's been a long time since I've explained it. Okay, so here is a timeline of biblical history. This is, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the X at the beginning of our line. This arrow at the end is, you know, the second coming of Christ and forward into eternity future. All right, the, the entrance of Christ into the world, his death on the cross and his resurrection and ascension back to heaven. So it went like this, uh, lying down, representing his arrival, the cross, his resurrection, then ascension back. You can properly, theologically, identify that event, that short, some 30-year timeline of history as the central hub of the timeline of all of history. All of history revolves around this great set of events the entrance of Christ into the world, the accomplishment of his mission, the fulfillment of his mission, and his return to heaven. Okay? So what Francis is asking is, in the Old Testament, which would stretch from Adam and Eve all the way to the ascension of Christ, during this whole Old Testament time period, there was a location identified as paradise. This is also referred to in one of the, what is commonly referred to as a parable, could actually be a little bit different, could actually be just an actual historical description by Jesus of the story he told of the, of the, the man who, um, the rich man who, and the beggar, remember, at his gate, who both died, and uh, one of them arrived in what was called Abraham's bosom, which is just a, uh, a very, um, I, I don't even know if I'm spelling that correctly. Um, it's just a very colorful way of describing in close relationship to Abraham. Okay, But it was also described as paradise. Um, that the souls of everyone in right relationship with the Lord during the entire Old Testament time period went to that specific location. All right? Now, where was that exactly? Obviously, it's a spiritual place because their souls and their physical bodies are not there during that time period. But there is good biblical reason for believing that this was located in a spatial location in what is called the heart of the earth. Now, since I didn't have time to do a lot of uh, uh, passage checking, you know, because this question just came up tonight, um, I can't direct you to the specific chapter and verse where this is described, but you can find this in the New Testament. It's in one of the four Gospels. All right, so I believe that there was a spiritual location that was also overlapping a specific physical location inside 
planet earth during the entire Old Testament time period. It was the depository, the waiting place of all souls who died on planet earth from Adam and Eve until the ascension of Christ. Now that location had two subcategories. Actually, technically has three, but the two that that the main two are the two we're concerned with. And that is a location for righteous souls and, of course, unrighteous. And just so I don't uh, leave you hanging, the third category was a special location for certain sinning angels. Using the original term, um, this is identified for us both in the book of Jude and the book of Second Peter. Um, it's a location called Tartarus. And this is a subcategory of this unseen realm in the heart of the earth. And in this unseen realm, there was a place for the righteous souls. This is where Abraham was located. Not just Abraham, all of the godly who died in the Old Testament. And then there was a location for the unrighteous. And there was a, as Jesus described it vividly for us, a chasm between those two locations. So that even though they're souls, they're not free to go wherever they want. They're taken to one of these two locations. The righteous are taken to this side. They must remain there. The unrighteous are taken to this side. They must remain there. The righteous side was described as a pleasant place, an enjoyable place. The unrighteous side was described as an as a unpleasant experience with heat, flames, thirst, things of that nature. Okay? And there was the desire on the unrighteous part to cross over the chasm, but they were unable to. And at least in the case of one individual, there was a desire on the part of the righteous, so one of the righteous souls to cross over to see if he could help alleviate the suffering of one of the people that was on the unrighteous side, but that was not allowed either. So no crossing that chasm. Now, the question is, what happened at the end of this time period which ends with the arrival of Christ into the earth, his death on the cross, his resurrection from, his, from the dead, and his ascension back to the right hand. Understanding that none of the souls who died had access to heaven itself, the third heaven. The third heaven was a locked community for the entire Old Testament time period. No soul, I don't care how good or how righteous, was allowed to go to the third heaven. The reason being that Jesus had to be the first human being to enter the third heaven and to open the way for others to follow him. So what happened was, when Jesus ascended back to the right hand of God, back to the third heaven, he did not ascend alone. The scripture describes that he, and this is described for us in Psalm 68, I believe it is, and in Ephesians chapter 4, 
If you're interested, you could go back to our Ephesians studies in chapter 4 where we studied this in some detail. And it describes that he, when he ascended on high, he led captivity captive. What that means is that he, between his death and his ascension, he descended, captured the entire category not that they were opposed to being captured, of the righteous. And then when he ascended, he took them out of the heart of the earth with him back to heaven. The unrighteous were left where they still remain to this day, waiting for the day of judgment. The angels who sinned remain to this day, waiting for the day of judgment. Now, not all angels are there only a certain special category of angels that sinned in a particular way. That's another study of another day, which we have studied before together. Uh, that's also described in Jude and Second Peter. Uh, but the, the bottom line is that's what happened. So paradise was the same paradise that it is today, but it's in a different location now. So paradise itself, which described not the the uh, unpleasant category of the unseen realm, uh, the unseen realm being Hades. That's the description of the whole thing. Now, paradise is the pleasant. It's like the, the, uh, the, nice, the nice neighborhood of Hades, okay? Paradise itself was removed from Hades and it was taken because paradise isn't about so much a a physical location. It's about the people that were in paradise in right relationship with God. Because interestingly enough, paradise itself is a term that was also applied earlier in Scripture to the Garden of Eden. So paradise, the the term is actually an old Persian word which just means a walled garden. So it's a useful term to describe the Garden of Eden before the fall, because this is where people were in right relationship with God. It's a useful term to describe, even in the afterlife, the location of those who were in right relationship with God. And it's still a useful term. Now, paradise itself has ascended in Christ, with Christ, to heaven, so that paradise is now identified with the third heaven, because it's the location where, from this point forward, the ascension forward, to the second coming, all righteous souls who die now immediately upon their death go to the third heaven into paradise to be with the Lord. And so we wait still for the final day of judgment, but we're waiting in paradise just like they were waiting in paradise. It's just for us, paradise is in the third heaven. For them, paradise was in the heart of the earth. Does that, uh, let me check, just double check. Is that, I see a couple of like, I get it, and I get I see a couple of like, hey, you totally lost me on that. So I, I'd be glad to go back over anything that I, was yours a clarifier or a further question, Tim? Okay, I'll go with you first, and then I'll go back to Deb. Like the center of the earth, think of it in those terms. Like think of the center of the earth. I, 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 w- I would say it's not quasi-physical, it's really physical, but you're dealing with souls, not bodies. Okay. 
Okay, here's, here's where we get a little bit confused by different terms. The term Hades literally, no, literally just means the unseen realm. So technically, Hades is all around us. It's just the unseen realm. The term that describes this location in Hades, which is for the unrighteous, was called Gehenna, which was associated with a physical location on the surface of the planet, which was symbolic of the reality of this spiritual location in the heart of the planet. Gehenna was a valley right outside of the city of Jerusalem during the time of Christ, which was a gigantic garbage dump. And, you know, just like we have large garbage dumps all around the city of Los Angeles to take care of our trash, the city of Jerusalem and every major city in those days had garbage dumps. Gehenna was the valley where all the garbage was dumped and they didn't do landfills. What they did was they burned their garbage. You know, they weren't like big global warming, you know, people. They just weren't concerned about those things. They just burned their garbage. So there was a 24-7 fire burning in the valley of Hinnom, which became known as Gehenna. So this, this valley just burned constantly, constantly, constantly. So it became an image, a symbol of the fires, of the unpleasant, you know, horrible location in Hades. So Gehenna is a subcategory of Hades, just like paradise is a sub, was a subcategory of Hades. Yes, but I mean, you can't physically go visit it. It's associated like, let's, let's say it this way. It would be like saying, um, let's say, and I'm not asserting that there is, let's say there's an angel here tonight in the meeting, an angel somewhere here in the meeting. Can we see him? Let's just assume there's an angel visiting us tonight. You know, can we see the angel? No, we can't see the angel. Can we touch the angel? Can the angel touch us? No. Yet the angel, in a real sense, can be identified as being here, right? And the angel has the ability to appear here and be touched and to touch us and to disappear, all right? So in that same sense, this is a location that is associated with a certain physical location in the planet, but it's not, it's not fully identified with that physical location as though you could get into a, like there was a a science fiction movie a few years ago about, or like when I was growing up, Journey to the Center of the Earth with Jules Verne, uh, you know, wrote the story, but they did a a movie with Pat Boone as the, as the lead guy. And, you know, they, they journeyed down, down, down deeper and they got to the center of the earth and there were dinosaurs and all that stuff down there. You know, um, could you, could you journey to that place? No, you can't physically get there because it's a spiritual location. It just happens to be an overlay to that physical location. I mean, I really believe at the heart of the earth is what, in a physical sense, is what scientists describe. You know, there's probably an iron core. There's probably molten, you know, magma surrounding it. Just like they, they, they have good reason to physically believe that's what's at the heart of the earth, physically. But spiritually, there's something going on there too. But if you physically went there, you wouldn't see it unless you died, which you would if you went there. <laughs> All right. 
Yeah. Now, Deb, you had a question. Immediately. At the point of death, yeah. Draw your last breath. You're, you can't, just like you couldn't go to paradise when you died in the Old Testament, you can't go to the third heaven. Angels escorted people there then, and angels escort people there now. Yes. Yeah, waiting for the second coming at the same time as the second coming is the great resurrection. The great resurrection is the final redemption uh, experience, which is all of us receiving our resurrection bodies. Not just us who are alive today, but every saint that's ever lived in all of human history. So Abraham, still waiting for his physical resurrected body. Adam's still waiting for his. Moses is waiting for his. David is waiting for his. Paul the Apostle is waiting for his. And we're also waiting. It's just it's not as pressing for us because, you know, we're in our physical body now. But yes, that's at the second coming is the exact same time of the great resurrection. Yes, the judgment immediately follows. So it's like this, second coming, concurrent with the second coming, the great resurrection, immediately following the great resurrection, the final judgment. Yes. They're like a, it's like a it's like a combination of those three components of one great event at the end of time as we know it. Yeah, John. Yes. What do you mean? Oh, 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 what you're asking, where is eternity going to be, you know, uh, where is our activity in eternity going to be located? Both. We will be like Jesus in the sense, and like angels are today, we won't be limited, like, okay, here, you either, you're either here and alive, or you die and you go to heaven. You're escorted to heaven. And there's no going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. Though Paul's experience in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 was a unique experience in which he said, I was taken there, and I can't even tell you whether I was in the physical body or not in the physical body, but I was there. Okay, that's a unique experience. Most people don't go back and forth in that regard. But angels do go back and forth. They're at the throne receiving messages and assignments, and then they're leaving the throne, the third heaven, and coming to earth to carry out their assignments. And they're not traveling at warp speed. They're traveling at instant speed. Okay? And so our experience will be like theirs is now. Heaven will exist and continue. The earth will be renovated and renewed and recreated And so we will be here and we will be there and our assignment will involve both places. Okay, any other questions? Michael? Yes. No. Yes and no. I mean, if you're you're saying from a, a physical standpoint of what could be observed to symbolize um, their relationship with the Lord at the end of their physical life here in this world. In that sense, yes, you can make a case and say, yes, they ascended. But did Elijah, when he was caught up in the fiery chariot at the end of his life here in this world, 
did he was the, did the chariot take him to the third heaven? The answer is no. The chariot took him to Abraham's bosom. Methuselah as well. But you're probably thinking of Enoch, not Methuselah. Yeah. Uh, both of them were taken to paradise, to Abraham's bosom, because no man had access to the third heaven until Jesus shed his blood and presented his blood before the throne of God in his ascension as is described in Hebrews chapter 9 and in Revelation chapter 5. Okay. It's okay. What about them? They went to paradise, but then at the ascension of Christ, they all as one group, from Adam all the way to Malachi, all of those godly people who were waiting there in the good side, paradise side, they were all taken by Jesus into heaven. He, like the, the image was like um, in the ancient world when a Roman general would win a great victory. He would return to Rome and he would return at the head of a train of captives from his conquests. And he would have this great parade into Rome where all the people lined the parade route and you know gave him praise and honor and glory for his great accomplishment. And he would lead all of his captives into the capital city. That's what Jesus did, except the captives he led were his own godly people and they weren't you know, in a suffering position. They're in a position of the enjoyment of being his captives. But yes, that's where they were and that's where they are now with, with the Lord in third heaven. Not him. Who, what? Yes. Which spirit are you referring to? The Holy Spirit or your spirit? Okay, your spirit and your soul are the same. There, there's a, there's a, there's some Christian teaching that says we, we have three components, body, soul, spirit. And there is one passage in the book of Hebrews that indicates that the word of God is able to divide even to the dividing of soul and spirit. But the point of that passage isn't to indicate that there's like these three parts of you and that your spirit can somehow be over there and your soul can be over there. Your spirit is your soul and your soul is your spirit. What we're talking about are fine distinctions that really only the living word of God can even distinguish between the two. The whole point of that passage is to say they're indistinguishable except by God himself. Only God can see a distinction between your soul and your spirit. It's the, the more common description of the makeup of a human being biblically is two components, inner inner man and outer man. And outer is obviously our physical component. Inner man is soul, spirit, mind, will, emotions, you know, all that stuff inside of you that makes you who you are. Yeah. Yeah, and I understand, and I'm very familiar with that teaching. I'm just saying they go a little bit too far with that. It's good intentions, but... Right. That was the, um, the, the, the beggar. It's in um, Luke 16. Can you, can you read a little, just a little portion of that to clarify that for us? 
It's a very interesting story. It's commonly referred to as a parable, but it has some earmarks that it may not have been a parable because in, um, for instance, in the parables, no one's ever, in all the other parables, no one's ever actually named. But in this case, there is. It's, it's entirely possible this is just Jesus describing a real historical event. That's Gehenna, by the way, there. Okay, I think I overstated it, and I, I think I misspoke. From hearing the story again, uh, the account again, um, clearly the man who was in torment in Gehenna, the unrighteous portion, the suffering portion, appealed to Abraham, Abraham representing the Lord in this scenario. He appealed to him across the chasm and said, will you send me someone? to relieve my suffering and to even just dip their finger in the water so that it can you know, quench this thirst on my tongue. It doesn't describe that any one of the righteous are appealing to go over the chasm. So I'm, I was reading into his request a motive that isn't actually described in their part. So, yes, John. Which man? He brought back more than one to life. Lazarus you're talking about, though, the most famous one? Where was he? And what, and what do you mean? When he died, where, where was he? He was, he was there with Abraham. And then when Jesus raised him from the dead, it's like an angel went down there, grabbed him, and brought him back into the tomb, which then he came out of and they unwrapped him. Because he was reunited with his body. His soul was reunited with his body. And that happened the instant Jesus spoke the words, you know, Lazarus, come forth. That word of command from the Lord would have caused an angel to immediately go down into paradise, grab that soul, jerk him out of there, bring him back into the tomb, into his body, to, be, to come out and to be unwrapped. And then he died later. Not immediately later, but later he died again because he didn't live forever. He wasn't raised into a resurrection body. No one was raised into a resurrection body except Jesus so far in history. So he died later. And when he died later, where did he go? Back to paradise to wait for the ascension of Christ, which then he went from paradise. So he had a, quite an interesting, you know, back and forth and up and down and finally ended up in heaven. Yes, that's the answer to that. All right. Um, 
So I didn't get to any of those other questions because you guys kept asking me questions. So it's your fault, not mine. All right, so Barry, thanks for your question. Appreciate it. And uh, do you guys want to do the rest of these questions next week in a second open study, or do you want me to dig into some more tangible study like Daniel or...